Some days I walk up here and I think I'm interrupting. You know? You know what I mean? Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Lance and Jacinta, for the music this morning, for the worship this morning. One of the last things Jesus said on the cross is, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Remember? As Jesus was about to close his eyes, as he was about to finish what he had started here, he says lastly to God, okay, I finished what I can do. I've done what I can do. My last breath is about to leave. It's a, I'm about to end this human life that I've joined myself to. And I hand you what happens next. The Bible is full of handoffs. It's full of them all over the place. That's probably the most spectacular of them, although there's some pretty pretty amazing ones in Scripture. But I thought about the fact that the Bible says that God holds us in just His right hand. That everything in our world is just a handful to God. Our God is so, so much more than we can even get our arms around to imagine beyond our furthest, the furthest reaches of our imagination. That's our God. And He holds everything in, the Bible says, His mighty right hand. Our problems, in His hand. Our victories, in His hand. Our frustrations, in His hand. Our anger toward Him, in His hand. He's not afraid of it. It doesn't bother Him. He's not worried about it. He's not under, uh, underpowered for it. It's in His hand. It's in His hand. Today, as we talk a little bit about this, I want to, uh, I want to talk about just a handful. Just only a handful. What are the things you normally have in your hand? I look out at some of your faces. I know some of you have a shovel or a hammer in your hand. Some of you have a steering wheel in your hand. Some of you have a keyboard in your hands. Some of you have pens in your hands. Some of you have uh, dental instruments in your hands. Some of you have electrical wiring in your hands. Some of you have just your other hand in your hands. What I'd like to talk to you today is an inventory of what you hold and what you do with it. Now, last week we talked about joining ourselves to what God is doing. I feel like that's what church is this morning. I feel like God is moving. He's doing what He wants to do this morning. And we'd like to join ourselves to it. Don't worry if what you're joining is your frustrations. Don't worry if what you're doing is your, what you're joining him, handing to him, is even anger. He's not, he's not going to reject it. 
and he can handle it. He can handle it. As we begin this morning, I ask you to join me for one more word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for the blessings that we have already experienced, for what you have laid out before us, and what we discover in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4 is a story of Moses' first steps with God. And we think of Moses as this, this great guy who does all these amazing things, but we forget that Moses had an 80-year life of mostly what he would have considered failures up to that point. Moses was sort of rejected by his mom. Of course, it was an edict of the king that had him put in the water, floated down the Nile at the risk of being eaten by the crocodiles, picked up out of the water by a, a, a princess of Egypt, hauled, if, hauled off into the, uh, the, the presence of the royal family, an adopted child of the royal family, a lot like us. He was raised up first by the Egyptians. And then when it came time for him to, buy, to feel like he needed to identify with his family, with his home, with the people who held his heart, he failed at it, killed a man, failed and fled off into the desert, picked up by some Midianites, and a Midianite family sort of adopted him and gave him a wife and gave him a job. And for 80 years, his whole life had to feel like one failure on top of another. Imagine the first 80. We always look at the last 40, but imagine the first 80 years. Some of you don't have to imagine. Some of you are living it. Some of you are sitting there today saying, I understand. I understand. I feel like I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten what God had for me. I haven't, haven't discovered where I'm supposed to go yet. I, I was hoping by now I would have figured it out. And some of you are saying, I don't know, understand that. I feel like I've been riding the waves that God is made, making my whole life. Whatever the story is, that's where it is. In his mighty right hand. Held in his mighty right hand. So when Moses got his start, you remember the story? He's minding sheep. That's his job. That's his job for the last 40 years. I'm coming up on 40 years in ministry. Yeah, I was 12 when I started. And as he's coming up on 40 years of following sheep, he's an expert at following sheep now. He's put in his 10,000 hours and he's sorted it out. You follow the sheep, you get them to water, you get them to food, you take them back home, you shear them, you get the sheep, you take them out, you get them to water, you get them to food, you take them back home. You get them to she- you take out the sheep, you get them to water, you get them to food, you take them back home, you eat a few of them, you get the sheep, you take them out, you lead them to water, you lead them. He's become an expert on where the water is and where the food is and what time of year you have to be where to find the water and to find the food. It's not very stimulating. It's not what his, his brain wanted to spend its life on. It's kind of boring, really. Just him and the sheep and his staff. So you got Moses and a stick and a flock. 
One day he's standing out there, no internet, looking for something to do, looking for something different. And there's a fire. Remember this story? Remember the story? Some of you may have seen it placed on a, a felt board when you were a kid. This, this fire, this bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. It's just, it's on fire, but it's not burning. It's a, it's a weird thing. It's a miraculous thing. It's, a, it's an eye-popping thing. It's something to do when you're hanging out in the desert trying to find sheep water and find sheep grass. And anything's worth the time to go and check it out. So off he goes. Wanders over to the bush. Checking it out, looking at it, trying to figure out how... Is this thing actually doing what it looks like it's doing? It looks like it's on fire, but it's not actually being consumed by the fire that's in the bush. This is weird. And as he approaches... We, you know, I know you're saying in your head already what's going to happen, but you have to realize how wild this is. The bush talks to him. love the way the Bible has just become so common to us that we look at stuff like this and we go, yeah, of course it did. The bush talks to him. Calls him to go and rescue his people. Finally, go back to Egypt, get the people, bring them out. This is what you wanted to do. No, not anymore. I'm 80 now, God. This is not my calling. Find somebody younger to go get these people. I don't want to do it. I, 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 I can't even talk. God calls. He refuses. God explains that he made his mouth. He still refuses. Don't you love that the Bible is real with us? Don't you love that this story doesn't say, and God called Moses and he went and did it. Instead, there's an argument back and forth between God and Moses about whether he really should do this and whether he has skills to do this, whether he wants to do this, because you have the same arguments with God. I do. Who are you calling? I'm the wrong guy for this job. The conversation takes some interesting turns and God selects his brother, who had to, by the way, have already been on the way to meet him when he heads for Egypt. So the calling on his brother that he answered had to precede the calling on Moses that God knew he was going to refuse. And yet God engages the whole conversation. Let's Moses fight with him. You ever fought with God and thought you were ahead? You're not. He's not surprised about your arguments. He's just waiting for them to come out of your mouth so that he can answer. It's the parent. You know, this is the parent looking at the child, knowing what the child is going to do. Knowing that the child is going to say, no, I'm not eating the broccoli. And the parents can say, yeah, you do have to eat the broccoli. No, no, I don't want to eat the broccoli. I don't like broccoli. But you, son, you've never tasted broccoli. Right? The parent knows their answer before the child finishes his sentence. And then this piece. The Lord says to him, What's that in your hand? Now, shepherds traveled pretty lightly. They didn't have backpacks to carry all their junk in. There's a little bag, shepherd's bag. It would usually have a little bit of food in it, some bread maybe. 
which, by the way, after a few days would get sort of stale and taste like the leather bag that it was in, but, you know, it was bread from home at least. Things got really bad. They'd eat a sheep. They also knew places in the desert where they could find food. But they had their staff. It's really the only tool of their trade. The bag's just a pouch. But when a sheep needs some protection, the staff is there to help fend off attackers for the sheep. When the sheep need guidance, that staff is there to poke and prod and direct and guide. It's his only tool. These are the tools of his trade. What are the tools of your trades? What, what are the things that you use? What are the skills that God has blessed you with? What do you have in your hand? See, Moses in all of his complaints, back and forth and back and forth, Moses is, is just trying to get out of this. And finally God says, All right, buddy, what's that in your hand? Does God know what's in his hand? Does God know what's in yours? What's that in your hand? (laughs) These answers should always be, you already know. It's a rod. Shepherd's staff. It's, It's my stick. Carrying it around for 40 years now kind of worn a spot in where my hand fits. The oils of my hand have actually created a different color where I hold it. Kind of grown accustomed to it. Fits nice. I've shaved off all the little sort of misshapen parts that didn't, you know, feel good and left little calluses or blisters on my hand. Kind of worn those off and shaved those off over time. I rubbed it on a rock a couple of times to knock off some high spots my rod only thing he has that's the tool of his trade what what do you have in your hand what do you have in your hand some of you said well i i've I've retired i put down my tools no 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 no. there's no retirement where the kingdom of god is concerned (laughs) you may have retired from the work that was providing you your income But you cannot retire from the kingdom's work. It doesn't happen. Retirement never happens in that role. He may use the things from your other employment for the kingdom, but now if you haven't said, well, I'm retired, no, you still have tools in your hand. Some of you are saying, I'm too young. I haven't even even developed any skills, any tools yet. I don't have any tools. I, I have anything in my hand. Yes, you do. What's in your hand? What are the gifts God has given you? What are the skills God has given you? What, do you? what is in your hand? What do you have the power over? What do you have the control of? What's in your hand? It's just a rod, Lord. It's just this thing I carry around with me. I whack the sheep with it once in a while. I beat a wolf off the other day. It's my rod I carry it around. It's just a rod. And God said, cast it on the ground. Throw it down. Let go of it. Empty your hands. So he cast it on the ground. And it became a snake. This, problem, this thing's probably six feet tall. It's, a, it's at least as tall as him. A lot of rods were taller. A lot of these guys would ca- carry a seven-foot rod because it would give them some extra length. And it's, it's not too cumbersome if it's only a foot or so taller than you. So it's not a little snake. 
This is six or seven foot long snake. <laughs> Some of you love snakes. We all think you're weird. The rest of us respond the way Moses did. And Moses fled from the miracle of God. <laughs> Cobra, maybe. He fled from it, though. He just was told by God, throw your rod down. A miracle happens. I mean, he's seeing some cool things. He's standing in front of a bush that's on fire but isn't burning. He's talking with the bush. And now a snake has, or a rod has turned into a snake. And he's <laughs> running away as fast as he can. Because that's often our response when God does the miraculous in our lives. It scares us. When we can see God about to, about to launch us off the cliff into where faith will be the only thing we have left, we run back the other way. What is that? It's a rod. Throw it down. It's a snake. I'm out. That's the, that's the, that's the three-second experience. What is that? It's a rod. Throw it down. It's a snake. Gone. What do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? Is it a skill? Do you have a skill in some area of life that gives you an opportunity to speak into other people's lives? Do you end up in somebody's house fixing their plumbing sometimes? Do you end up out on a golf course with strangers sometimes? Do you end up actually you're singing out in a group of people and people listen to you because your voice it's better than the rest. What has God blessed you with? What's in your hand? Throw it down, he said. Came a snake and he fled. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand. Now, this is Moses. Oh, big fella. Turn around. Because he fled, which means now he has to go back. The Bible doesn't fill in all of our details for us all the time. He has to go back to where the snake is currently active or the snake chased him. If he's not going back to where the snake is, the snake came to where he is. If the snake chased you and God said, pick it up, would you be more or less likely to pick it up? I would be less likely are you kidding me, God? It's chasing me. Pick it up. Oh, by the way, grab the end without the teeth. Would you take a moment and explain to God why that was a bad idea if it were you? I wish we knew because I think Moses would have said, hang on, God, the other end is the end you're supposed to grab one of these things. I've, I've dealt with snakes before. Maybe you have. A, that's the business end. Stop the business end. Pick it up by the tail. Because I'm in charge of the snake. It used to be your stick. Now it's created fear. And I'm telling you how to handle the fear. Don't pick it up in the way that you can control it. Pick it up in the way that only I could control it. Grab the tail. Don't worry about the teeth. 
I have the keys. Pick it up by the tail. <laughs> you people are not entertained enough by this story. You should be more entertained. This is a great story because I have imagined, I, I just, do you not have the pictures in your head? Is there not a film strip in your brain right now going, hold still, snake? If I had to grab that tail, I'm pulling and running. Now I'm fleeing through the desert with a snake that is operably turning back into a stick. Pick it up by the tail. It started to feel familiar again. And he felt the rod forming in his hand again. And this would be Moses' experience again. This would happen to him again. This was, this was kind of practice. If you hand the things of God over, the things in your hand over to God, miraculous, crazy things happen, and you get to practice that first time for the next time. Have you practiced this week? Has something hit you hard between the eyes and you got a chance to have faith in God this week? Have you faced something you didn't want to face? Have you faced something you knew you had to face that you were maybe even had abilities for, but it just tied you up in knots this week? Pick it up by the tail. Wow. Wow. Take the rod back. You go back to the bush. A little sheepishly. Say, okay, I got it. Well, what do we do now? You know what God is doing is just having him take inventory of what he has. He just only has one thing. He left all the prince of Egypt's teaching things. He's, he's walked away from what it meant to be Pharaoh's stepchild. He's walked away from what it meant to walk in the courts of Egypt. He's walked away from his Hebrew upbringing, his Hebrew first three or four years, his family, his bloodline. He's a stranger in a strange land, living a way he never thought he would. He was the hero in this story. He had planned it out in his head. He's fallen flat on his face over all these years. And now here he is and God says, now that you're down to a stick, we're ready to go. Gideon, you have too many soldiers. Send some home. Anybody who's afraid, send them home. You still have too many soldiers. Okay, Gideon, send them over to drink water. Anybody who laps it up and drinks it like that, keep them, get rid of the rest. 300's good, I guess. There's 100,000 Midianites. These numbers are about right. You only have a stick left, Moses. You won't take credit because you know it's a stick. And you know it's a snake, a stick, and I'm in charge of whatever it is and whatever it does. What do you have in your hand? As long as you hold it, it's a stick. 
As long as you're the one controlling it, you're the one controlling it. This is what we meant. This is what I meant last week when I was talking about joining God and what He's doing. If we're joining God and what He's doing instead of trying to get God to join what we're doing, we're missing a bunch of what God wants to do. What are you holding? I'm going to keep asking. I don't need you to tell me. I just need you to think. I just need you to consider who you are in God's eyes, not who you are in yours. And what the inventory God would be taking right now would be if God had you in the desert talking to a burning bush and he asked you what was in your hand, what would the answer be? It's just fill in the blank. It's just when you release your grip on it, that's when the miracles begin to happen. Some of you have done this before. Some of you have felt a big call on your life and you've answered. And when you finally let go, you realize that God was just waiting for that. When you came to the end of yourself, you discovered God. Himself. When you stopped ruling your own roost, you realize the ruler and the leader of the universe wanted to hold you in his hand. You and your little stick. And do some amazing things. You know, you do realize Moses was sent to free Israel from the greatest military power then on the planet with a stick. Yeah. Take your stick and go talk to Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. That'll work. (laughs) It still took some convincing for this guy because he, like us, is a little nervous about these big calls. But I do want to just... I do want to just remind you that's all he had left and that's the only reason he's ready. If Moses had gone back riding in on a steed with an army, who gets the credit for freeing Israel? But when it's just a shepherd and a stick, there's nobody to give credit to but God. But everybody has something. What's yours? If you're nine, you have something. If you're 90, you have something. What is it? Again, I want to call you to live all the way to the end. Moses thought he was pretty much done. He was 80 years old. He did not have a lot of prospects. There were not a a bunch of headhunters calling him to come and lead a nation. But live your life all the way to the end. And live your life from its beginning. If you're a young person... 
don't imagine that God has something for you to do tomorrow. He has something for you today. He has something for you to do today. What's in your hand? What's under your influence? What is it that you have control of? What is it you can have an impact on? You know what I want my last breath to be? A prayer. If I can't die while preaching, let it be a prayer. Because prayers exist in the heart of God all the way to their completion in the authority of God. Long after I've closed my eyes, my prayers still move on the planet. You know it's true. You've seen people's prayers answered after they've died. Mothers prayed for their children. Fathers prayed for their children. And after they died, their kids came to know Jesus. That's the life of a prayer existing in the hand of God after the parent has closed their eyes. Why wouldn't we live our life all the way to our last breath? If you're not afraid of dying, you can spend those last minutes praying. What's in your hand? What do you have control over? Take another story. If you think you have nothing, Moses had a stick. Well, maybe you think a stick's a pretty big deal. Elijah goes to a widow at Zarephath. You remember this story? Some of you are Bible scholars, Bible students, you know the story. Elijah has been living off the crows. You recall he was sent out to live by a stream to be fed by unclean animals, by the way. God finally releases him from that, dries up the stream, and sends him into the town of Zarephath. Because a miracle is needed in Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, he meets a widow and she's gathering sticks. She didn't have a stick. She's gathering them. Moses had his rod and his sheep. She doesn't have anything. She just, she's gathering sticks. She's gathering sticks for a fire. He calls out to her. In the Middle East, in, in, in desert countries, it's a common thing that you, everyone is required to give water to someone who requests water. It's, on the high seas, if you find a boat that's in stress, it, in distress, in, it's maritime law that you have to help. To bypass a boat that's in distress on the, in the sea is illegal. And you can be prosecuted for it and for the outcomes on those people's lives. In the Middle East and in countries where it's dry like this, to turn away someone who is requesting water is, is a huge offense. This woman is collecting sticks. Elijah calls out to her, could you bring me a little water in a jar so I have something to drink? The Bible says she quit collecting sticks and she went and got to get him some water. While she was getting him some water, he called out. Bring me peace, bring me please a piece of bread. Travelers asking for water and bread, just water and bread. Surely as the Lord your God lives. Do you see the phrase? As surely as the Lord your God lives, even people who have given up on God have something. 
If you're here today and you're not sure whether you're going to, you're going to even throw your lot in with God, if you're not sure that you're willing to be on His side, this woman is not sure she's serving this God as surely as your God lives. As surely as your God lives. She knows that if she swears in the name of this man's God, he will believe her. As surely as your God lives, I don't have any bread. I can get you some water from the well. I don't have any bread. Could you give me something to eat? Can you give me a little bread? I don't, I don't, don't, I don't even have bread. The answer is no, Elijah. No. I'm collecting a few sticks so that I can prepare a last meal. I only have a little flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug, and I'm going to take those two things. I'm going to make a little cake for myself and my son, and then we're just going to wait for death. Because we've been abandoned entirely by God, and this is what we've been left with. Thank you very much, Elijah, for closing the heavens, because you're the reason I'm about to die. And now you want water and bread from me. Thanks a lot, big fella. I only have a handful of flour. A handful. Just, just that much. How much flour could you hold in your hand? Half a cup? You got a big hand like mine, you might get three quarters of a cup. Nobody's probably getting a cup in their hand. Just, you got a tortilla's worth of flour. And a little oil in a jar. I'm going to make... A little piece of bread. Taking these sticks into the house, I'm going to warm up a hot rock and I'm going to make some bread. And then we're just going to wait. We're going to wait to die. We don't have anything in our hands to take care of you. Anybody feel like they have nothing? Anybody feel like their hand is empty? Anybody feel like God emptied it? She sure did. The Lord, your God, as surely as your God lives. I don't have any bread. I have nothing in my hand. I'm having to collect sticks outside the gate just to to make a little fire so I can make that glorious last supper. I'm taking him home to make a meal for myself. Stop there. How hard would it be if that was your last meal? How much harder is it if it's the last meal of you and your son? We think that we have nothing to offer. She was certain she had nothing to offer. Who needs a miracle today? Elijah? Nah. He could find somebody else with some bread. He was not sent to Zarephath to make himself some bread. He was sent to Zarephath 
to rescue this woman who is losing her grip on God. I'm going to make a meal for my son and me that we may eat and then we'll die. This reminds me of the story in the New Testament where Jesus is standing watching the offering plates. Remember? He's watching people as they drop their offering. They had a box like that out there. They had a few of them actually. And you people would go by and they'd drop in their offering. Some really rich people would make their offering into coins so that they would make more of an impact. If their hundred bucks was broken down into coins, just think of all the coins jingling down into the pot. And it would just make people think, wow, look at those guys. They're pouring a ton of money. And this woman's got two little mites. They're about the size of the tip of my finger. She's got two of the smallest little coins that the Romans produced. They're worth nearly nothing. She could perhaps have bought one piece of fruit or one slice of bread with these two little coins. And instead of making a last meal, she goes to the church and she drops them in the offering plate. And Jesus watches. I wish I knew more about that story. Because she needs a miracle. Jesus says she's dropped in her last two coins. Everyone else here is given out of their abundance. They have hands full to give, but she's just got these two little coins and in they've gone. Everybody's giving out of their abundance. She's given the last thing she has. And God is watching. I want to see the rest of of the story. I want Paul Harvey to stand up and say, and Jesus and the disciples took her in and they made her part of the family and they took care of her for the rest of her life. And when Jesus was resurrected, he came back and said, your offering was amazing. I spoke to dad about it. He said it was so cool. I'm so thankful for you. I I want all of that story. I don't know that story. We didn't get that story. But I know God. And I don't think Jesus watched that and abandoned her. Any more than God abandoned this woman who is down to the last little bit of flour, the last little bit of oil, and no more faith. And no more faith. And no more faith. If you took the inventory of your hand today and there was no faith in there, you're not abandoned by God. He will give you that too. The miracle happens when we release things. As long as I'm holding on to it, I am the one controlling the outcome. When I'm releasing things is when God gets a chance to step into things. The way we join God is to let go of our white-knuckled grip on the stinking steering wheel of our lives and let God be God. We see the miracles when we let go of our own control. 
We often complain in the United States about the miracles happening in other places. You know why miracles happen in other places so much more? Their wallets are thinner. There are fewer opportunities. And so they have to let go. Moses is down to a stick to save Israel from Pharaoh. The woman is down to a handful of flour and a little oil. The woman is down to two little coins. The reason we hear the reports of miracles in so many other places so much more often is because they've had to release the last bit of control they had. That's when those crazy things start to happen. If you get down in Moses' story, he stops thinking about that rod, that staff, as his own. There's a packing list for the trip to go rescue Israel. The packing list is he took his wife and his sons. Good thing. Remember the kids? Remember the wife. He heads out for the land of Egypt. And oh, by the way, Moses took the rod that now belonged to God. It was a stick. It became a snake. It became a rod. And it now belonged to God. It's that rod that he touches the, the, the Nile with and it turns to blood. Remember? It's that rod that he throws down in front of Pharaoh and it actually eats the snakes that Pharaoh's magicians produce. It's that rod that spreads the Red Sea. It's that rod that he strikes the rock with and the water flows out. This is the rod of God that he's carrying with him the rest of the time. And he's got to feel pretty amazed holding that now. Now that he knows it's not his, now that he knows it's in the control and power and authority of God, it's more than just a stick. It's more than, it's more than he's ever had before, even when he had all that Pharaoh could offer. Elijah says to the woman, don't worry, don't be afraid. First make me a loaf of bread. Act on faith. Make me a loaf of bread. You're going home to make one last loaf for your kid and you, and then you're going to die. Don't worry. Make me a tortilla first. And then I promise you, neither the oil or the flour will run out. Let go of it. You have a handful of flour. Let go of it. What do you have in your hand? I have a handful of flour. Let go of it. Let's see what God will do then. See how He will meet you there. So I want to talk about one last thing. The restoration of faith. You see, it was your God a minute ago 
And when the, when the oil and the flour keep coming day after day after day, it stops being your God and it stops being my God and it stops being our God. Because I'm watching God do stuff every day. I get up and I look in the, look in the jug and there's oil and I, I look in the can and there's flour and I pour some more out and I make some more cakes and then I go back and I pour some more out and I, pour some more out and I make some more cakes and I pour some more out and I pour some more out and we eat our fill and we had 10 burritos this morning. Why? Because God just kept filling up the little containers. And faith is restored by the authority of God when we release to Him the things we're trying to control because we don't need faith while we're in control because we're in control. Our faith is in us. Our faith is in me. I've told you one of the scariest and worst things in a pastor's life is when we become competent. Because when you become competent, you don't pray as much. When you know you are incompetent, you pray a lot. We are incompetent by the, by the nature of our birth and the brokenness of our spirit and the sin that dwells in us. We are all incompetent. Restoration of faith comes when I open my grip. Jesus is in a synagogue on Sabbath. I I promise this is my last story. I won't go more than 45 more minutes. Jesus was in a synagogue on a Sabbath. He walked in. It's it's what he did. He went and hung out in the synagogue. He was a Sabbath-keeping kind of a guy. There in the synagogue that day was a man whose right hand was withered. There's a whole bunch that goes on in this scene. I just want to narrow this scene down to Jesus and the man. His hand is all withered up. The Bible doesn't say how. It's somehow misfigured. It's somehow been that way for a while. Maybe his whole life he's been this way. He's been broken in this particular way. And there he is in church that Sabbath, still bearing the burdens of this hand that doesn't function properly. People look at him in the street and they see his hand and he pulls it inside his clothes so that maybe they won't notice him and think he's weird. You know, he puts it, he tucks it under his other arm. He he holds it and he covers it with his other hand. He's constantly trying to keep people's eyes off his dysfunction, off his brokenness. He's He's constantly trying to hide his disfigurement from others. He's trying to not let anybody actually see who he is. And when Jesus walks into the synagogue that Sabbath, he sees him for everything he is. He sees the man, not just the hand. But he also sees the hand. And he sees the opportunity that it provides. He speaks to the man. He says, get up. Stand over here. You're the guy who's been trying to hide your disfigured hand your entire life. The last thing you want to have some preacher do is call you to the center of the room. But there's something in the voice of Jesus that makes people answer. He gets up and he stands in the center of the room, brokenness and all. Like the woman caught in adultery who's brought in in front of Jesus with whatever she could grab off the bed that day. He feels naked. He feels uncovered. He feels like his shame is on, on parade in front of the whole world. You know that if what you feel like you hold in your hand is broken, it's, it's not something you want people to know about. He says, stand here. 
And then in front of all of these people, stretch out your hand. Do you think this man has never tried this before? Don't you think his entire life he's been trying to stretch out that hand? His entire life he's been pulling on it. He's been talking to people. He's rubbed oils on it and he's soaked it in this and he's soaked it in that and he's tried and people have prayed and incanted and in all the ways you can imagine they've tried to get that thing fixed. Now here in front of the church this man has called him out and he said stretch out your hand. You can refuse at this moment. Moses did. Moses refused several times, right? He could have refused. But he didn't. The Bible simply said, and he did so. There it was. It had gone from his greatest shame to his testimony. Sometimes all we feel like we can bring to God is our brokenness, and he's okay then. Bring your brokenness. He can fix that too. And the crazy thing about the repair and restoration of our brokenness is that it actually becomes one of our most prized possessions in the service of God. And now he suddenly filled up our hand. Where the hand could hold nothing, the hand has become the testimony. The restoration of the hand that is opened by faith. What are you holding in your hand? What are you clinching in your hand? What are you hiding in your hand? Here hung Jesus. He's given everything he can give. His blood, his breath, his strength, his life. It's ebbing away. He has nothing more. And with his last breaths, he says, into your hand, I commend my spirit. I've emptied all that I've had. I've left nothing behind. Please catch me now. Our Father and our God, we wish to dwell in your mighty right hand. We're afraid, and we want to place our fears in that hand. 
we're upset. We're maybe a little mad at you right now. uh, And we want to place that anger in your hand. We're broken. We're frustrated by that brokenness, but we will place it in your hand. We have been plagued with abundance. And we want to place it in your hand. Lord, not that we would have an abundance of what the world counts as glorious, but that we might have an abundance of what you count as beautiful. May we, may we be filled with the abundance of love and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. May we be filled with the kind of love for our neighbor that our neighbor actually feels. May we find that in our hand is faith to follow you for another day. Into your hands, we place our hands. Amen.